0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Once upon a time, Pauline Menzer was the best woman surfer in the world. She was declared world champion in Hawaii in 1993. But it was no fairy tale ending for Pauline. As winner of the Women's Championship title, she didn't receive any prize money. And she didn't land any sponsors by being the world's best. Instead, Pauline got a broken trophy and still had to flog jeans and second-hand bicycles to make ends meet. Pauline already knew what it was like to fight for what she loved. She'd grown up in Bondi, battling the boys and rheumatoid arthritis, just to get in the water. But now, nearly 30 years on, after starring in a documentary on the female pioneers of surfing, Pauline is getting her recognition.
0: Hi, Pauline. Hi, Sarah. Back when you were a little grommet, what kind of surfboard did you learn on? First time I went surfing, my, one of my older brothers had a surfboard that he broke in half. So um, coming from a poor family, I ended up starting on half a surfboard. <laughs> and who taught you? Did you do one of your brothers if you, you had brothers who surfed? I did, but um, I remember learning on my own first on the half a surfboard, just basically catching shore dumps at Bronte Beach. And then um, through time, I ended up collecting cans and baking cakes and pretty much did that a lot of the time to to get any pocket money and uh, saved enough money to get a full cool light and then started surfing at Bondi. And um, after surfing there for about six months, I met another girl surfer Tanya. And um, she'd surfed a little bit longer than me. And she's like, oh, you should get a fiberglass. What was Bondi like back in the
1: the
0: 1980s? What kind of surfing scene was it? You know, it was really tough back then on land and in the water. It was really a boy's world. And I remember the boys being really tough because I was right into it because my brother's you know, rode bikes and skateboards and we're at the beach and enjoying the water. I, I thought it was normal that girls also did that. But then once I started getting into skateboarding and surfing, I realised there was pretty much no women doing it. So um, I never thought that we weren't allowed out there until I started getting a little bit better and a little bit better. And so many times people would say, you know, this is not a girl's world, you should go in. And I remember one guy um, in particular said to me, because I was getting all the waves and he's, you know, getting all upset. And he said, if you're a guy, I'd punch you in the head. And I said, if I was a guy, I'd be punching you in the head. (laughs) But that's the kind of aggression you had. And that was just because I caught more waves than he was catching. Yeah, like there was even a couple of well-known locals where one of them dropped in on me and I was riding the wave. And then I'm like, hey, 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 get off, get off. And then he just came up to me and whacked me in the side of the head. And then um, I didn't report it or anything, but the word got around to the police and they're like, do you want to report it? And I said, no, I heard he's pretty crazy. I don't want to report it because if he goes to jail because of me, then I'll never hear the end of it from him. So it it was quite a lot of rough characters, but there was also some, you know, I had a team of like four or five guys that were always really encouraging and friendly, and one of those people was Victor Ford, who owned the local surf shop in Bondi Junction. And he saw that I was getting better and better. And so the first fiberglass board I bought, instead of it being $40, he let me have it for $20 (laughs) and um, pretty much started surfing on a fiberglass. And then he would, he was in the surf a lot of the time. And each time he saw me, he'd always try and correct my style and get my, um, you know, flow happening. So I really am grateful for what he did in helping my surfing come to that's the style that I did have. What
1: was going on with your health as you became a teenager Pauline?
0: When I was about 10 I started waking up with um really sore knees and really swollen knees and hands and it was hard to turn my neck and through time we finally found out that I had arthritis and so um I was taken to hospital every week and used basically as a, a guinea pig because um Back then there wasn't a real lot of study done on kids with arthritis and I remember getting given like tons of aspirins and disprins and stuff like that and they used to put you in a brace, or so like different braces where, you know, if you put your wrists back as far as they can go, they would put you in braces like that to sleep because my wrists were getting really stiff. Mm. And so it was really quite horrible and traumatic Were you in pain a lot of the time? Yeah, so what happened for years, it would actually come and go, which is, I was told by my rheumatologist that that's quite rare. You know, I'd have like four or five months of absolute hell and then it would be better again and I wouldn't be in a flare up. So the flare ups, I explained to people who don't have arthritis, it's kind of like doing a 25K run you know, the city to surf or something and not training for it and how you feel the next day. That's what it's like. Like every muscle is so painful or like a sprained ankle. When you touch it, it's really bruised and sore. That's basically what your body feels like. How was it to surf? Like
1: was that something you had to push through the
0: pain to do or, or did it feel
1: different when you were on the water?
0: You know, for me, the most amazing thing about surfing was the escape of the pain. Because you you still have the pain, but just when you're doing something you absolutely love, and there is you know you got adrenaline pumping through your body when you catch a wave. It was this just release of um, having something so beautiful when you when you're suffering, and um, you know I just made do with how I surfed that day. Like if I was a bit slow with my ankles being too sore on my wrists, I'd just just do what I could and. There's a certain love about the ocean too, just being there. Like you don't have to catch waves to enjoy it. It's it's just being part of nature. You know, when you see dolphins going past or just the water's super crystal clear and even just seeing your friends catching good waves, there's something just so special about it.
1: Hmm. What was your first experience of a pro event at Bondi when you were
0: still just a kid? So, you know, I've been surfing for about two years I think and um, I was already riding a fiberglass surfboard by then and I was surfing quite well already and all of a sudden there was like this big massive contest and I was still surfing out the front and they kept saying, "Well, that little boy get out of the contest area? (laughs) And I'm thinking, oh, they're not talking to me because I'm not a boy. And, you know, I was a total tomboy back then with short (laughs) hair and stuff And um, because I was probably a young girl surfing all right. They especially didn't think there was a girl in the water and then I kept thinking they're not talking to me and so – I kept surfing there and kept surfing there. And finally one of the local people said, Pauline, get out of the water. They're talking to you. (laughs) And then um, I sat and watched the women surf and I went, oh, I can surf like them. And then I thought, oh, they're professional surfers and I can surf like them. That's what I want to do. I want to be a pro surfer. And so it was really good for me to have a professional event at Bondi because it made me have something to strive for. Because, you know, there was really very little magazines with women in it. So I didn't really know what there was out there and didn't have too many other women surfers except for some that were doing some amateur events to know what there is. And um, from that point on, it gave me the the hunger to, to become a professional surfer. What
1: kind of surfer were you back then? Like what marked out your style?
0: I guess I surfed with a bit more power. Because guys, like like I said, there wasn't many women surfing then and to have someone that was surfing different to the women normally did, like the women surfed kind of more dainty and then I was trying to surf with more power. Back then they were always saying you're just surfing more like a guy but I say with more power. That's what I strive for and I always wanted to surf as good as they, the guys did and so I just kept pushing and pushing for that. What did you
1: wear to surf when you first turned professional? Because there weren't really women's board shorts around back then. What were you supposed to wear?
0: No, so I was actually quite lucky. I did get some free swimmers off a Byron Bay company who made cotton swimmers, which was very, almost sounds impossible worrying. to find. No, they were really cool, <laughs> actually. So they had amazing patterns on them. And I asked them to make me a swimsuit that had shorts incorporated into it. They were really short shorts, kind of like going back to the, I don't know, women back in the 40s were Hmm. wearing those kind of swimmers back then. So it's sort of bringing that style back in. So basically us pros were designing, you know, things to wear because there was nothing. When you
1: started in this fairly new, exciting world of pro surfing, like it, that was still a fairly new thing in the 80s, this pro tour. You, like any normal teenager, Pauline, were thinking of money and thinking of fame. What was the reality when you turned pro? i
0: know I never forget getting my first interview ever. The lady was saying, "What? what is it that you want? Do you want the wealth, the fame? And I went, I just want it all. I just want it all. And, um, you know, I saw Pam winning a car and just all this – Like it really was amazing earlier and then it seemed to drop off when I was mainly doing the tour and we went through a recession and the guys were so scared of us getting any of their money so they kind of started to really dislike having the women around because I was scared that we're taking some of their money. So, um, yeah, it was pretty really difficult back then.
1: What are some of the comparisons that stand out about how the the men were treated on tour with, with how the women surfers were treated?
0: Oh, there was no comparison. They were just on a different league, you know, in when it came to conditions. Basically as soon as the wind would come up or the tide was too high, they'd say, right, put the women on and then when they'd put the women on, then they'd have the beauty contest on the stage so no one no one's watching us surfing. So yeah, that we were definitely second class and they'd have like a a parking spot for every single guy in the top sixteen. And then that would only give a spot for the top five women. So here you are in the middle of summer in France trying to find a parking spot at a major contest was a nightmare. What about accommodation? Yeah, so accommodation, they'd be staying right at the waterfront because they had money for that kind of thing. And we were staying, a lot of us would travel up to five girls in one car. So you can imagine there's like 25 surfboards on the roof. And um, we'd also share accommodation. There was times, you know, it was really hard to find accommodation that was cheap. So would rock up at the, at the, especially in France, rock up at the contest and just open our board bags and s- pull the boards out and sleep in the contest area. <laughs> and they're like, you bag. can't sleep there. It doesn't look good. <laughs> so then we ended up going under the scaffold, like the, the bleachers where everyone sits, like the scaffolding and like putting the beds under there. So we didn't, you didn't notice us. Because we're like, we've got nowhere to stay. (laughs) And what about when it came to prize
1: money? What was the reality back then?
0: So that was a never-ending fight as well. You know, you'd see these guys holding up $100,000 checks and the women would be getting 10. Like the the difference was just incredibly different. Like I was lucky that I wasn't sponsored, but I was lucky that I was, you know, a high achiever back then because any time I wasn't doing well the pressure of not doing well and having no money would make you go, like, I was lucky I did well with the pressure. I'd go, oh, no, I need to earn more money now because I've only got $100 left and I've got to get to France. <laughs> and then I'd end up winning that event. So for me, in a way, it was, even though it's a negative thing, it was positive as in it made me try a lot harder.
1: So you were living kind of prize money to prize money. Did the second-class status of, of women surfing – did it make it all the sweeter when you showed up, the the guys in the surf then?
0: Oh, yeah. I especially love to say when, when I was at a beach and someone would paddle up and say, how long have you been surfing for? Like You surf amazing. I'm like, oh, I've been out here about two hours. <laughs> so I used to love doing a little bit of a stir like that. But, um, you know, again, because I grew up with three brothers and they were all picking on me and making me fight for anything that I wanted or needed or anything. It was just always a fight that just was the norm for me. So like being up against, you know, the surfing association or the other surfers, I'd always just say stuff like I'll never forget one time we're at a meeting and the the head judge said to all the girls, you know, the only person that actually comes up here and complains is Pauline. And we do like the um, feedback that we're Mm. getting from her. So even though you feel like it's complaining, that's how we want to grow. And so You know, at the time back then, one of the head judges was dating one of the pro surfers. And it's like, that can't happen. So like stuff like that, you had to fight for as well. Well, you really showed everyone in
1: 1993. What do you remember about the lead up to the world championship in Hawaii? What kind of season were you having?
0: So I guess the stress of going for a world title made my body collapse into the one of the worst arthritis attacks I've ever had. And um, it started right after I won in Japan and then there was going to be a long break before Hawaii. Um, I don't know whether it was pollution from over there or what, or just the stress of going for a world title, but by the time I got back to Australia, I was in a pretty bad way. And um, my coach, Steve Foreman, was really worried because he's like, didn't tell me this, but he's told me many years later, he, th- he said, I, don't, I didn't think you were even going to go to Hawaii. Your Your body was so bad. But instead, he found out some people to try and help me, like change my diet and a really good masseuse and just getting a team of people around to help. But then, you know, with only three weeks in, I thought I'd go to Hawaii early and see if I, if I felt better being there. And then when I got over there, I was still in a bad way. I still couldn't, I couldn't really barely walk. And you so I wasn't... walk? Yeah, I was walking so crooked. My elbows were stuck bent. Um, I couldn't bend my wrists at all. So, you know, with three weeks in, I thought I'd better go see a doctor and see if I can get something to help with the pain. And so I went to this doctor and she looked at me and she said, I was 20, 23 at the time, and she said, oh, you should be in school, shouldn't you? You know, because I looked like 14. And I said, <laughs> well, actually, I'm going for a world title and I need help. My arthritis is so bad. I need something to help get me out in the water. And so she, without really... Talking to me much, she came in with a needle and said, I just need to put a needle in your hip so you can help you move. And she said, Oh, tell me where it hurts the most. And, you know, it all hurts so much. I went, Oh, I think that's the worst there. But she didn't really explain to me that it really had to be in the right perfect spot for it to work. So that didn't really help. And then I saw another surfer, Hawaiian surfer, Rochelle Ballard, and she said to me, Look, there's a guy in Kauai that, like, puts your body in time. Why don't you come and see if he can help you? And I thought, oh, it sounds a bit weird, put your body in time. Anyway, I flew over to Kauai and went and saw him. And it was a bit weird what he did, like he was touching, say, my neck and my my ankle at the same time. And he did put my body into a better rhythm. And when I walked out of there, I was walking better. So I was still bad, but I was, you know, probably about 15% better. And then... Even Jodie Cooper was staying with me and she said, I can't believe that you're not free surfing. And I'm like, have you not noticed that I'm in a bad way? And she goes, you can't tell just looking at you. You look okay. And I said, no, I could not surf. So my partner at the time, she was massaging me every night to try and get movement. And then for my training, I'd just put my leg rope around the, the handle thing, you know, when you walk into a pool and just paddle in the pool to keep my paddling fitness up. And then the day of the contest, um, I got a Hawaiian girl to loan me her really big, which was huge for me, a seven 7'10 seven surfboard, and I was still hobbling to the water's edge, paddle out, and, you know, like still feeling it. And then as soon as the hooter would go to surf, I surfed like there was absolutely nothing wrong with me. I know I was using my knuckles to get up on the board because my wrist didn't bend back, and here I am surfing huge waves, but... I realized just how big it was while I'm paddling out. There's still 10 foot waves coming through and, you know, I'm really nervous and in pain. You know, I see these girls charging these waves and I'm like, wow, I really do need this extra length board because, um, you know, just to get in with my body like this, I, I need it. And then once that hooter went, I just surfed like a woman possessed. I didn't care about being sore or my adrenaline just stopped the pain and, um, I was basically surfing like there was nothing wrong with me. You know, I watch back that footage now many years later and just can't believe that not only was I surfing those bigger ways but surfing with a body that was so crippled. And um, when I hit the beach, someone came up to me and put a layer of flowers around my neck, like a jasmine-smelling flower. And so, you know, that smell sort of stayed with me forever. And when I got up on stage, I just remembered just being so excited that, you know, going through those months of trying to be normal to even be able to surf, like I felt like this big bag of um, heavy weights fell off. Mm. So it was a really massive relief that it took a while before the actual world title sunk in. Yeah, I was just so happy to have won. How fantastic. And
1: being crowned
0: Women's World Champion, what did you win? So there was no prize for you know, a placing on the world title at that time. So the guys won stuff, but the girls didn't. So no cash you, at all? No. penny? Like, like, so you got money at each event if you won, you know, there was prize money at the contest, but there was no actual money for winning the world title. You know, I just thought that was absolutely pathetic. Here I am thinking that I'm going to get something at the end and then they gave me this trophy. And for years I thought the trophy was just not screwed on properly on the base Everyone that wanted to touch it, I'd always say, no, you can't touch it because it's loose. And one day I thought, I just need to fix that. And then when I went to tighten it, I looked at it and I'm like, oh, my God, it's broken. Like, lucky it didn't hit anyone. Like, I'm glad I didn't get anyone to lift it. And so, yeah, I thought all these years they gave me a bloody broken trophy.
1: (laughs) What about sponsors, Pauline, which is where so many other servers, particularly the men, were starting to make or had been making big money? Were sponsors interested in you as a, a world champion, a newly crowned world champion?
0: No, it was so hard. Like, you know, I couldn't find anything. So then I decided to have a raffle. I kind of did it the wrong way. I ended up got so many prizes, I probably would have been better off selling the prizes. So this was in Byron by by this time, so... The town was supporting me in that way, but, um, you know, to have no – like to realise I have to sell these tickets to make the money. So that didn't really work that great, but um, I just kept on surfing.
1: (laughs) And was it partly that you – you know, and I think back about the other women who were surfing – and getting sponsorship, though it was never like the way the men were getting it. They were those sort of California, tall, blonde, blue-eyed surfers. Is it because you didn't fit that mould? Was that part of what was going on?
0: Yeah, I think totally. Like, I won't mention names, but my coach at the time said that one of the major companies didn't sponsor me because of the way I look. But um, also hanging out with Jodie Cooper, who was openly gay on tour at the time, and hearing from surfers and and sponsors and all those kind of people who were so homophobic, you know, it was dangerous to be out because people were still getting bashed at the time when I was on tour. Like even there was one of the girl surfers that lives in Wollongong and her and her partner were attacked and injured quite bad. And so I realised that within the industry, they most of them knew that I was gay. And so when I finally did get a sponsor, for a short time there um that company didn't know I was gay so I really felt it wasn't just look it was also about sexuality mm.
1: what part did fellow surfer Jody Cooper play in your coming out to yourself first of all
0: I guess being with Jody gave me an out to have somewhere where I could feel like I could be could be a hundred percent myself hanging around with her and her friends so we did Mardi Gras together that was great and um had some absolutely fantastic times. And, you know, I used to be, we used to have dress-up parties and I remember doing a, being a sumo wrestler and that was all really good fun. <laughs> and then just seeing the people react there in an atmosphere I could be myself, I realised how much everyone was laughing. So then I started to bring that on tour and I became known as Naughty Pauls quite well on tour for entertaining. And so I started to, do, to be more me on tour I started to be open, never publicly, but within the surf community about being myself. And I became really liked and everyone was like, oh, you're just so entertaining. and so funny. The tour was not the same without you. And so that really helped me become myself was realizing that people don't really care. So you weren't getting sponsors. There wasn't that much prize money.
1: How were you supporting yourself while you were on the, the pro circuit?
0: So I've always been a bit of a penny pincher and learnt how to survive and Serena Brooke said, oh, you're so famous for like making money out of nothing and she said, see this spoon and she picks up a plastic spoon off the beach in Japan, she said, you could probably sell that and make money. (laughs) And she said that because, um, you know, I'd do things like have garage sales before I went away or on tour, I'd rock up in California and I realized that 501s were really big at that time. So I'd buy like a hundred pairs of Levi jeans and bring them to France. I also brought a um, really big groovy bicycle that I got at a discounted price in California, bought it for 200 and was able to sell that in France for 2000. (laughs) And so that became the way I survived is constantly finding things like that. And then Because I couldn't afford to stay in accommodation, I, you know, learned to make friends around the world and then those friends really became my sponsors. So those Levi jeans that I bought 100 pairs of, it would be my friends that I stayed with in France had all their friends lined up to help me. So I was basically sponsored by the community around the world. Over the
1: years, you know, you tried to get other women to join you in speaking out against those unfair conditions that you were facing on tour. What happened differently in South Africa in 1999?
0: Yeah, well, there was there was quite a few times um, I tried to get girls to not paddle out with me, you know, because the conditions were so bad, all the waves were almost non-existent. But they were sponsored by... You know, like say it was the Roxy Pro, they were sponsored by Roxy. So Roxy says to them, if you don't paddle out, you're not going to be sponsored by us anymore. And then finally there was one event in South Africa that um, none, none of the girls paddled out. That was you know, kind there of was like t- a, a sit-in or a strike. We were really nervous. Like we we all got our contest jerseys and sat on the beach and, and then the girls are like looking. Everyone's freaking out a bit because they were pretty good at finding you if you didn't do what you were told. And I just said, just sit here, girls, don't paddle out, just sit here. And so, you know, from that point on, we realised that if we stick together, we can push for things that we deserve and should be getting. And so from that point on is when we decided to have a representative and then that representative went to the meetings and also to the contest director when it came to those really crappy conditions that they're going, right, you're out, would say, no, talk to our representative. And so there was a big change from that point on. podcast broadcast and online
1: this is conversations with sarah konoski find out more about the conversations podcast just head to abc.net.au/conversations You say growing up in Bondi, Pauline, your family didn't have much money. What kind of things did your mum get you and your brothers to do to to try to make a bit of extra cash? How did she teach you to be thrifty, those skills you used later with the bike and the jeans and all of that?
0: Oh, yeah, so she was thrifty in so many ways. Like, you know, I just remember her in the backyard always making everything herself. Like she built this really nice garden shed she built an Avery on her own, and I always thought, wow, lucky. you just never saw women doing those kind of things. And then she said she can't afford to give us pocket money, so if we want pocket money, we've got to work for it. And so her way of teaching us that young is we used to do the street clean-up, and so you know, being two sets of twins, she'd get one twin and the older one on one side of the road and the others on the other side, and we'd scour the streets, collect everything we thought that we could sell at a garage sale. And um do that and she was the one that took us to Bondi Beach and would you know, on a Sunday afternoon all four of us would walk the beach and collect all the cans and get whatever clothes were left on the beach and um yeah, just do stuff like that. So yeah, learning from a young age of <laughs> that you can make something out of nothing really. How would you and your brother treat yourself when you
1: were kids when you had, you know, ten or twenty cents?
0: Oh, uh, actually that's really funny that you say that amount because <laughs> I remember that when we were at school we would go okay now the the bus fare is um 5 cents each and the potato scallops are 5 cents each let's just hide under the seat when the bus conductor comes <laughs> so don't you, if you remember the always was a bus conductor getting money so we would hide under the seat and then we're spewing when it went up to um, 10 cents the scallops went up so we end up only being able to get half a scallop each <laughs> But um, there was always ways like that that we were... um, They must have been good scallops if you were prepared to, you know, hide under the bus seat. Oh, so good. My mum was really clever too because, you know, my, my father was killed when we were very young and my grandfather was killed too. And so my grandmother came to live with us. So there was my grandmother, my mum and four kids. And so, you know, to survive she was always doing what she could. And one of those things was she took us to the beach... And I thank her for us becoming such beach people. And I said to her, why did you always make us meet you at the beach and never could go home? And she said, because I soon realised that if I got dinner ready and brought it to the beach, got your kids really tired from swimming and doing whatever, fed you down there, that when we got home there was nothing to clean up. <laughs> So she was always doing those kind of things to make life a bit easier for herself.
1: What sort of things do you remember her cooking? What sort of
0: um, thrifty meals did your mum come up with? Oh, the best one was, um, you know, again, feeding four kids is quite hard and trying to do it cheap. She decided to give us these pizzas with rice on it. And I'm like, why are you doing pizzas with rice? Like, that's a bit weird. She goes, oh, just to make it go further. (laughs) All the carbs. (laughs) So, yeah, it was quite funny. So you mentioned, Pauline,
1: that your dad was killed when you were young. Do you have memories of him? Did you get to know him well before that?
0: Not really. Like, I remember him through photos. I remember my mum being quite upset by him not leaving enough money to feed the kids. So there wasn't real happy stuff around my dad. I do remember finding it weird. I think my mum actually told us that he'd gone on holiday or something when when he was killed. So I'm not sure how long it was till I realised he was gone. But I remember even as a kid thinking it was funny. You know you know, at school kids pick on you and they pick on you for being anything different. So they used to try and pick on me for having no dad. And they would say, where's your dad? And I'd say, he's all skin and bones. And so that was my way of freaking them out because they're trying to be nasty so I'd freak them out back. And I think that's also where I learnt to be cheeky on tour is like, someone gives you a hard time, you just shock them. <laughs> <laughs> How
1: did your mum
0: help support the
1: family after your dad died? What did she do for work?
0: So she was on a pension, but she was smart enough that she had bought a, um, a licence for a taxi. So I guess back then when you owned a licence, you got a little bit of money. So between the pension and a little bit of money from that, she really struggled my grandmother helped a little bit but um you know with my grandmother there was always like a little bit of if I give you this what are you going to give me so we all learned to try not to ask her for anything
1: <laughs> you you found out something from your grandma much later you know your family didn't talk about its history much when you were growing up but what conversation did you have with a dentist that changed the way you thought about your family
0: yeah, so as I got older, people kept saying my little Shanghai girl or like Asian. And I went, really? Like, do I look Asian? And I never thought about it ever. And I guess kind of as I got older, I looked more Asian. And then I was at a dentist one day and he said, Oh, do you have any Asian background? And I said, Why? And he said, Oh, because your front teeth are con- concave, they're not round at the front. And he said, Most Asians have that kind of teeth. And same with like, there's little divots at the end of my teeth. And I went, oh, that's interesting. So I went home and I said to my mum, you know, everyone keeps calling me Chinese. So what's the go with that? And I said, I've seen photos of my dad. He doesn't look Chinese. And then she said, oh, I'll show you a photo of your real grandfather. And I said, what do you mean real grandfather? And she said, oh, that picture of that, because we always had a photo of my grandfather up on the wall, the one that my grandmother remarried. He's not your real grandfather. And so then my mum started telling me this story that my my grandmother and my great-grandmother escaped Austria because they had Jewish background and then, you know, with the Nazis and everything that was happening. So they ended up going to China. And then my grandmother met, the man, I don't know if she married that man that was our real grandfather, but... My mum was born in Shanghai and then my grandmother just left that man and my mum, my grandmother and great-grandmother all came to Australia on a boat. Gosh, so did your mum know this
1: growing up, that that her real dad was a a Chinese man, her mum had met in Shanghai?
0: My grandmother was really secretive. So even not long before she died, I I tried to find out our history and she said, you'll find out when I'm gone. So she always told my mum that, that my real grandfather was Mongolian and Portuguese and so because my mum's never been a real big talker, she just talks about everyday life. She never talked about history. She didn't even think that we didn't know. That. So she goes, oh, yeah, like that's not your real grandfather. Here's a photo. And I'm looking at the photo of my real grandfather going, oh, my God, like that is totally where my look comes from. And so then my grandmother, when I asked her, she said that he's not Mongolian and Portuguese, he's Chinese. So we never really did find out, but some of the paperwork we found, we think he was more likely to be Mongolian and Portuguese because of the, the name and stuff. So, yeah, there's still research to be done on um, the family history.
1: <laughs> Amazing. And, you know, good outcome from visiting the dentist. Store. <laughs>
0: That's a happy surprise from the dentist. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and in terms of your own career, why did you decide to quit surfing professionally? Well, how did that decision come about for you?
0: Yeah, so I loved what I did. I did it for 20 years and I really would have, I think I would have been a Kelly Slater. I was, still would probably probably be there. But, um, you know, I got over penny pinching and, and really trying to um, survive on tour and the stress of really struggling financially. My arthritis came back with a vengeance and I remember I was stuck in Germany. Um, I basically needed a wheelchair to get around. And I was with a German woman at the time. And we used a skateboard for me to get around. Cause, um, sitting
1: on or, or standing? Yeah.
0: Standing. And I'd just hold on her shoulder. And so she'd pull me around the town to get around. And then, lucky enough, she managed to find a guy that would treat me for free over there. And so I got some good medicine and felt good again. But then... I realised it's just too stressful and this little bit of savings I did have from the tour, I was starting to dig into that. So I um, I just decided to stop mainly because of the lack of support and my body giving way mm-hmm. because of the lack of support, I feel. So how did you support yourself financially after leaving surfing? So I came home and um, went to Centrelink and that was actually really horrible because... They didn't believe me, they had arthritis, and then I had to go see their doctor. And you know, they just it was really quite horrible. They're making me go to the this, um, you know, it was a dis- disability part of Centrelink. But the one lady in there was going, You need to do aged care, and I'm like, But you don't get it, I can't do aged care, I can't even brush my hair, let alone look after someone else. But it was just really quite a horrible experience. But finally, when I pushed back and said I love animals, I started to work. Um, volunteer in a vet and, and did some courses on possibly becoming a vet nurse. Did that for a while, realized it wasn't for me, worked in a pet shop, loved that, but the um, pet shop went under. And then um, I ended up being, I don't know how I ended up being a shuttle bus driver, but I did that. And I actually really loved it because it was people on holiday and it was just really nice. And then um, my mum ended up getting quite unwell and I had to go live with her and look after her. And so I Decided to become a school bus driver because it was a lot more time to be able to be spend with her. And um, what did the
1: school I, kids think about you? I mean, did they I, know they were being driven around by a, a world champion?
0: So you know, far? they didn't. They didn't for a long time, and then finally, I got recognised into the Australian Hall of Fame for I got inducted, and so I was on the front page of the local <laughs> paper, and it was really funny because I'm driving the bus around, and and you know, you're in the bus, you're high up. And they deliver that local paper in the front of everyone's house and all the kids are laughing like while we're driving around, there's my face everywhere as we're driving around. So basically being on the front page of the local paper, everyone started to know who I was. Did you have good conversations with with them about surfing? I did. Yeah, there was a couple of kids that were really right into surfing. So, you know, two of the kids in particular, I'm still friends with their family and spend quite a lot of time with them and... Yeah, it's just really, really nice. I, I I would have kept doing it, but because of COVID, I just thought I need to keep myself safe because I've got a few other health issues happening now. So, um, yeah, I decided to give that up. And
1: so what are you doing now for work, Paulie?
0: Oh, now I'm caring for a guy that's got MS and um, he can only move his head, so he's lost all mobility in arms and legs. And I found it really rewarding, absolutely Awesome guys, funny guys, always been a surfer. So he loves having a surfer looking after him as well. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I do a little bit of both. I do a caring role and also helping around, you know, gardening and getting all chores done and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, I just really love it. And, and, you know, going and helping with the floods made me realize how much I do care to help others. So I think I'll just keep doing that caring role now because I kind of feel like I've found my niche.
1: Tell me a bit more about what's going on with your health now. In in addition to the arthritis, you've got another autoimmune condition. What does that mean for your body?
0: Oh, yeah. So the last two years, I've been through absolute hell with this condition that's very rare. It's called Pimphigus vulgaris. And... um, basically, you know, having the arthritis that attacks your joints, but this illness attacks your skin. So my body thinks it's getting burnt and will start to blister. And so you get blisters everywhere, especially where you have mucous membranes, it seems to attack. there really bad as well. So, you know, it's a nightmare trying to eat when you've got half your throat and tonsils and everything all raw and stuff. And, um, It was starting to get worse and worse and worse and then I ended up finding the best specialist in Sydney and went on a trial but um, the unfortunate thing with the trial is I had to take steroids for a long time. And what did they do to you, steroids? So I feel sorry for anyone that's taking steroids because they only warn you about the anger that you get on steroids but it's actually a very emotional drug and it affects all your emotions. I call them cryoids because... yeah, not only you're trying to live with the illness, you're trying to live with what steroids do to you mentally and physically destroying your body. So anyway, the trial wasn't working for me. So I asked to try something that's been tried and tested. So, um, that's another medicine that kills off half your immune system. And that's why I decided not to be a bus driver anymore. But, um, Thankfully, since I've been using that, I'm a lot better now and I'm able to slowly get my life back now. Hmm.
1: I'm glad to hear that. Does your health stop you getting in the ocean?
0: It did for a long time, yeah. But um, it's come back and then, you know, since the the movie as well, like just – having so much love around me, I think that's helping as well. <laughs>
1: well, let's talk a bit about the, the outcome or one of the benefits of that documentary, Girls Can't surf. How did that help you, in a way, end up getting some of that prize money that you were denied back in 1993 when you won the world title?
0: Yeah, so Christopher Neulis contacted us a few times, asking us some questions about the tour And he was just getting so excited and frothing and just saying, oh, my God, the 80s were just incredible and what you girls went through. And he said, I'm going to make a documentary. And um, I had no idea it was going to be as good as it, it ended up being and how well he told the story. And even the footage that he got was just mainly from us, how well he told it from trying to get what he could. But it completely changed my life. And the thing I love about it the most is it's, Telling our story is actually helping a lot of other people. So some really great things have come from that, that movie, like one kid saying or her, his parents told me that he went to school and asked what are they doing for the gay kids, like what kind of class have you got for the gay kids? And his mum said that he asked to see the movie twice and they are wondering why, and this is when it was still in the theatres, And then not long after seeing the movie, he went to the school and asked them, you know, what are you doing for us? And she said that because of the movie that inspired him to do that. Hmm. And then I got another message. I actually got lots and lots of messages, but these really stick out, um, of someone who was suicidal and they said, Look, I've got arthritis and I just cannot deal with it every day. It's so painful and I just hate being here, blah, blah, blah. And they said, I saw the movie and saw that you became a world champion while you were struggling with arthritis. I need to get off my ass and, like, start being more positive. And so hearing those stories and then seeing lots of other messages come through of people being inspired, I realised... Just how important that movie is! Mm. Someone out of
1: seeing that, um, out of seeing that film, set up a GoFundMe to to kind of raise some money to say, you know, Pauline, you never earned what you should have on the tour. Here you go. What did you do with the cash that was raised and the the flow on from that film?
0: Oh yes, yeah, Sophie was awesome. So, Sophie was working at Rip Curl at the time, and she just was so excited to realise I'm going to change this. I'm going to make something happen. And she goes, she rings me up and she's all excited, saying, I want to do a GoFundMe, do you mind? Like, I know I haven't met you, but you're just inspiring and I think you got rorted. And I said, Oh, yeah, that would be nice. And she said, Oh, what do you think it would have been? And I said, I don't know, about we probably would have got 10,000 or something back then. And I said, Maybe it's worth about 25 now. And she said, Okay, I'm going to do a GoFundMe. And then it hit 25,000 like within three days or something. I think it actually like went mad in 24 hours. And then she said, um, yeah, it's already hit your mark. And I'm like, well, if it goes over, let's donate to some charities. And so we made that clear in the GoFundMe and then people just still kept giving and they it ended up going to like, I think it was 65 or 69,000. And so um, it was actually really nice to help some other people in need with the rest of the money. Tell me about
1: the family or the man in the Philippines that you've you've helped with some of that money.
0: Oh, yeah. So one of one of the three people I picked is someone else that has the same um, autoimmune as me and didn't have any, um, like no money at all to get that kind of treatment that they need over there. And so I'd already donated some money anyway, but then I said to them, oh, look, like it's going to go over, so I'm going to donate to you. And I had no idea that it was going to go to that much. So... They end up getting a huge amount of money and with that money he was able to buy a little um, tuk-tuk or it's actually a bit bigger than a tuk-tuk. I think it's like a 12-seater but it kind of looks like a cool tuk-tuk and um, he calls it the Pauline Menza. (laughs) (laughs) And so he was able to do his health and create his own work so he could still do something when he's in a bad way and he's got five children so it was really nice to... um, make a change in someone's life.
1: That's fantastic. And with all the the positive attention that you were getting, did that mean the sponsors did finally come knocking?
0: Yeah, it did. So um, now it's kind of funny, like I'm sponsored by a few people. So it's really nice to um, feel the love now. And I've actually been able to create my own surfboard called The Equalizer. (laughs) And it's done by the Surfboard Warehouse. So that was really fun being able to make that. And um, I wanted to um, kind of include women with what I was doing. And so I designed it for women who want to surf a board that's just really easy if you're transitioning from a learner board or also an experienced surfer who wants to sm- surf in small ways. And then I wanted the name to be made by someone in the community, like within the girls' surfing community. So I decided to have a competition that you win an equaliser and I had the contest between three um, surf clubs, three quite big surf clubs, and one of the girls that came up with the, um, the name The Equaliser was um, a 14-year-old from um, Bondi, and she said, um, I want the board to be called The Equaliser because I feel like you've equalised women surfing, and I can really relate to you because I'm bisexual and I have autoimmune and you just keep going, so I want to keep going. And if I win that surfboard, I'm going to have magic powers. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God, talk about perfect naming of a board. And so that's where the name came up. Mind you, the guy I'm caring for, he also came up with the same name at the same time. So that was quite funny. But I said, you're not a girl, so you can't win. <laughs> <laughs> you have to share the magic powers.
1: And what about your home beach of Bondi? How are you and your contribution? How is that
0: being remembered there? Oh, so it's been really amazing. Um, So the council's allowing a or has allowed a mural of me to be painted there on the wall and um, the crew that did the movie Girls Can't Surf, Christopher and Michaela, have been working on a GoFundMe page called Pauline in Bronze and basically they want the community to come up with the money to pay for the statue So, um, you know, if council have to pay for it and try and come up with the money, it could take 10 years. But if it's actually the money's raised and then donated to the council, that could happen really quickly. So I was having a little laugh with Paula because I said to Paula, oh, if you do do it, I actually know where I want you to put it. Where's that? (laughs) Um, So at South Bondi there, there's a shower. And there's never been seats or anything like that there. So I said you could cut a little square into the grass put benches all the way around and then have the statue in the middle up high. What do you reckon the the little Pauline learning to
1: surf on a broken foam board of her brothers would make of the idea that there could be a bronze statue of you there?
0: Well, that's what I'd like it to be is I'd actually like it to, to be of me when I was surfing as a kid, so a young girl surfing, to inspire the new generation and also to inspire women to just get out there. And I think what better way... You know, there's what ten percent of statues in Australia are women. I think they're only all royals as well. I think so, there um, are more
1: racehorses than there are of women. That's the stat I remember hearing. So yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> so you know that would be really awesome to happen. But um, you know, it, it was launched at the time of the flood. so uh, I understand that it it hasn't hasn't gone too well as of yet, but, um, yeah, we've still got plenty of time to raise that money. It must be amazing to look back and see the changes in
1: women's surfing, the changes in being able to be an out gay woman, like, you're not that old, Pauline, but I feel like the world hopefully has changed a lot in the decades you've been watching.
0: You know, it has, it's changed incredibly for educated people. There's a lot of uneducated keyboard warriors still out there <laughs> that, um, have got nothing better to do, but, um, yeah, it's great how, like, I didn't think in my lifetime that the money would be equal with competing, but, um, you know, I love seeing people like Lucy Small just pushing for equality and everything, and even, you know, hearing that we're getting 14% less wage-wise is crazy. Like, I thought that that was even now. I didn't realise that we're still behind, so there's still, you know, I'm still looking at pushing forward, like... I definitely think the the men's and women's tour from a sporting perspective should have the same amount. The scope of young women coming through now is absolutely incredible and it's something we've been saying for a long time. If you put money behind these girls and give them the support, they will just be as good as the guys. And they, the guys always said, no, they won't, they never will be these new generation are doing those manoeuvres that they thought women would never do, like aerials, 360 aerials, all those kind of things. Do you dream about surfing? Yeah, I still do. I still dream that I compete. And I've had this dream my whole life that I'm going to miss my heat because we've missed flights and stuff. So I still actually have those dreams. I don't get in the water as much because of health reasons. But um, like I said, I'm back in there now. I'm getting a lot better now. But On a board or just swimming? No, I'm surfing. Surfing quite a bit now. So you'll be seeing me in the water more now. Pauline, it's such an
1: amazing story. Thank you so much for, for sharing it with us on Conversations. You're welcome and thanks for inviting me. Pauline Menzer was my guest on Conversations today and that documentary about the female pioneers of surfing is called Girls Can't Surf and there's some fantastic footage of Pauline and, and other of her peers doing some amazing surfing and also some incredible 80s hairstyles. I'm Sarah Kanoski, thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. When was the last time you bought something to wear? This week? Yesterday? The average Australian buys 56 items of clothing and chucks out 15 kilos of clothes a year. So how did we get here? I'm Veronica Milsom, host of the ABC podcast Threads, where I undress the fast fashion industry and how it's designed to make us buy until we die. Threads. It's everything fast fashion doesn't want you to know. Hear it in the ABC Listen app.